Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. It is this month in birding for July 2023, which we'll get to here in a second. But I just wanted to make a quick ABA-related announcement. You might have heard that our executive director, Nikki Belmonte, left the ABA back in May to take an opportunity at another nature-related nonprofit closer to her home in Georgia. We'll certainly miss her. All of us here at the ABA appreciated the work that she did for us during the time that she was here. We do have exciting news, though. We have a new executive director starting in August, uh, and by extension, uh, executive producer of this podcast. Wayne Klockner comes to us most recently from the Nature Conservancy. He is based in Maryland, so no doubt folks in that part of the world will be seeing him at birding events and the like. So welcome, Wayne. Congratulations. We look forward to working with you. So let's get to it. No rarities this week as I am out of town and recording this part a little bit earlier than I normally would. So we'll get doubly caught up in the episode after this one. Sorry for that. On to the fun stuff. Stephanie Bilkey, Tim Healy, Prabita Saha, Talking Birds with me. Welcome to the end of July, the turn of the year as we head into the second half of 2023. It's also time once again for This Month in Birding, our monthly panel discussion about bird news and birds in the news. I'm excited to welcome three friends from the birding world to join me to talk about all of that. Let's welcome them now. She is the Senior Manager of Conservation Science at Audubon Great Lakes, a bird scientist and a galbatross. Welcome back to Stephanie Bilkey. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to see you. Uh, we've had him here to discuss rare birds in the ABA area, but we're expanding his purview today. He's an educator, a New York birder. He's Tim Healy. Welcome, Tim. Hey, great to be back, Nate. Great to see you. And she is one of our favorite science journalists and editor at Popular Science. And while she covers lots of science topics these days, her favorite beat is still birds and wildlife. She's also a Galbatross, I should add. Hello again, Rabita Saha. Hello from New York, everyone. Hello, hello. It's good to see you all. I wanted to uh, jump right into it this month with a, a quick conversation about an issue that comes up every once in a while in the ABA's uh, Rare Bird Alert Facebook group, which if folks are not familiar, it's essentially a place where people share notable bird sightings. And this particular issue spawned an argument, and I don't need to get into the details about the argument, but it did hinge on a second state record green-breasted mango in Louisiana, which is sighting bird, no, no doubt, and the decision by the homeowner who was hosting the bird to not to suppress the sighting uh, because they did, they did report it, but to deny local birders the opportunity to see it because they didn't want to deal with people, essentially, which, again, I totally get. I'm not criticizing at all. Um, but, you know, that discussion did not go over well with some birders, so I, I pose this to the panel. How would you handle such a situation from the perspective of both birder and homeowner, do homeowners, particularly if they are birders, have an obligation to share such a sighting? They have a couple of follow-up questions that'll kind of hold in my pocket for now. But what do you think about the situation? Any thoughts? No one, no <laughs> one wants to jump in there. <laughs> this 
has happened to me actually. So yeah. um, we had a spotted toey in my parents' yard wow. um, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, I put the word out and immediately I had someone ask, can I come and see yeah. it? <laughs> and I, I said, sure. Yeah. Um, but it was not necessarily my property to give those <laughs> access <laughs> uh, away, but I, I did say yes. And, you know, nothing bad happened. I don't think there's a lot of birders in Green Bay. I feel like if this something like this happened in Chicago, where yeah, I live now, sure. it would be completely different. <laughs> that is part of the part of the equation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So I, I gave permission at the time and didn't have any issues. I'm I, I'd probably be in favor of sharing if I had an actual yard that I could give permission <laughs> to. But um, yeah, I I don't have any issue either with people deciding to protect their own property making that decision for themselves, but I'm also not a chaser really. So I don't go out and see every single rare bird. So I'm, I'm also not in that like FOMO state that, you know, I'm going <laughs> to be really upset with somebody who's keeping birds to themselves. I hear you. Yeah. I think it's hard if you, I don't know if the homeowner themselves were the ones who put the sighting out. Um, they were, I believe in this situation, but of course they're not. That's not always the case. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So that is hard. That's, you know, you're just inspiring FOMO in, in your <laughs> birding true. community you then, especially for such a cool uh, tropical species. Um, but yeah, if you put yourselves in the shoes of that person um, or, you know, in Stephanie's case, when she was that person in lieu of her parents, <laughs> uh, you, there are so many things to consider, you know, if there, there is a security risk, uh, mm -hmm. you, the birding community is very friendly and gracious, uh, sometimes, um, but most of the time, they are always, strangers. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, who knows who can show up and, uh, you know, know where you're living and mm -hmm. some other personal details there. Um, there, you know, if you live in a suburb or a city, you have neighbors to consider and mm -hmm. people parking on your street and photographers coming out. Sometimes people um, do not like that. Yeah. Mm. So I, I would, I see it on the flip side where when a homeowner does allow birders to come check out a rarity I'm very grateful for that. And for sure. I'm like, oh, wow, that's such a cool thing for them to do. Um, but I wouldn't look at it negatively when the opposite happens. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Yeah, that, that sums it up very well for me. As somebody who has been fortunate enough to see a lot of really cool birds in people's backyards who've been yeah. kind enough and gracious enough to open up their homes and neighborhood to the just inundation of crazy birders who come swarming to see a real rarity. It's I'm, I'm always grateful when that happens because it's a completely reasonable thing not to want to yeah, open yourself I up agree. to that. So it's, I, I obviously don't think anybody's under any obligation or like, you know, need to invite people in if they've got a rare bird. I think it's, it's enough of a service to the community to notify that, hey, mm -hmm. this thing was seen, you know, for the sake of record keeping and the scientific, you know, databases to share those sightings. Um, and I think that a lot of times it comes down to a case by case basis. You know, what is the reality of the property itself, the surrounding area? Um, I know people who've been in a situation where they found a rare bird where they live, but 
they don't own the property where they live. Mm-hmm. They're only renting or, you know, they're, they're sharing a house with other individuals. So there's a lot of complexities that need to be navigated in these kind of situations. Um, and I think that for birders, it's important to keep a bit of perspective. Just, you know, be be gracious and be good guests when the doors are opened to us to visit where there's a cool rarity and be understanding and patient and not get entitled and certainly not aggressive when Mm -hmm. access to a bird has been denied for perfectly legitimate reasons. Um, And from my perspective, I have never had a rare bird on my property and I live in an apartment. So if anything was sticking around in the little garden here, I'd be happy to get people up on the roof to look down on it. But I don't (laughs) foresee that happening. Uh, yeah. At least not at this residence. Um, I just have one other question to add. What is the best situation you have ever been in in viewing a rarity that has been in someone's house? Because I've I've been in situations that have sort of run the gamut. I've been kind of herded onto a side yard and peering over a privacy fence uh, to see a very thrush, which is still cool. Love, love seeing that very <laughs> thrush. I've been welcomed into someone's kitchen window to like <laughs> stare out and like they gave me you know coffee cake and coffee and all that stuff, and that was like as far into the other. Uh, into the spectrum. It runs the gamut. And as you say, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with any of those situations. It, it is certainly nice for the birding community to kind of give back to those people. I love those situations where if it's a rare hummingbird, people will mm-hmm. bring a pound of sugar to create sugar water and leave it with the people or they will. Sunflower seeds are, are sort of expensive. So any opportunity you have to bring a five pound bag or a 10 pound bag of sunflower seeds as a thank you to the person for, for opening up their home and their yard is always a nice thing to do. We've kind of thrown around the idea here at the ABA of giving people like little little plaques as like a certificate of service to the birding community <laughs> for people who have particularly noteworthy rarities in their yards and were kind enough to open that up. There are a lot of ways that the birding community can give back as give thanks to those folks as well. Have you ever been in a situation like that before? And what was the most memorable experience you've had viewing a rarity, experiencing a rarity at someone's house? I think for myself, the most memorable in terms of both the rarity of the bird and the streamlined, well-oiled efficiency <laughs> of the setup had to be the black-backed Oriole in Pennsylvania oh, yeah, back in 2017, yeah. uh, because that was obviously a red-letter rarity, you know, mm-hmm. controversy connected to it and everything else. But um the whole neighborhood kind of came together and set up a system because that bird was particularly skittish, really didn't come to the yard if there were people in the yard. So the viewing situation was actually set up on the opposite side of the street in somebody's driveway, looking across kind of like through the driveway space at the backyard feeders of the actual homeowners. But they had coffee and snacks set up. There was a little guest (laughs) book. It was this very convivial atmosphere of just everyone kind of coming together and enjoying this rare bird. Um, but you know, I've, I've been at great stakeouts, as you said, for hummingbirds, for, you know, gross beaks coming to unusual places and things like that. It's just, it's, it's always really cool to see the different setups that homeowners and their neighbors come to in order to make things work out smoothly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the idea of bringing a housewarming gift. That's not something yeah. I've thought <laughs> about, but I think that's. That's an excellent way to give back. Um, I haven't had a lot of experiences with residential homes. Uh, you know, I've definitely lurked down the street <laughs> looking for even gross beaks at people's mm-hmm. feeders um, uh, and some hummingbirds as well. But one of the best private property uh, experiences I've had is um, 
it was a it was a farm in uh, Central Jersey, and I think they it, it was just a um, pink footed goose, which at the time was a lifer for me. Uh, and the farmer had, you know, been um, open to having people drive up to the property and kind of park on the side of the road and mm-hmm. scope out the goose. Especially farmers don't have to do that. Those are yeah. working lands. Mm. That's their that's their living. Um, if you know someone trods on their crops, even in the winter, that could be uh, detrimental. But very welcoming farmer, and it was just great to um, you know. Sometimes living in New Jersey, you forget that there's a huge agricultural population here. The people who mm-hmm. you know help sustain and uh, support our food systems. So just being able to connect with a farmer um, on the grounds of sharing a wonderful bird sighting that was, I think. Uh, what made the experience so special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think, um, I don't have any experiences where I've like gone to someone's yard to peek at a rarity that I, that I can at least remember. But, um, I have had a lot of experience burning, birding in urban areas. And I also Mm -hmm. once was, um, uh, on a research project for a PhD student whose entire, uh, project was just looking at nests in um, like suburban neighborhoods and oh. she had to go around and get permission <laughs> from a whole like block of people to yeah. get into their in and out of their backyards so it it was a little bit awkward and I feel like <laughs> I met a range of different reactions yeah, you know no she doubt. had gone around and gotten permission but some people you know were more pleasant than others and I I think you know I had one memorable experience where it was it was raining and someone was like you can come in my house do you need to use the bathroom and I'm like I don't oh sure you know (laughs) I just went with it um so I think that was the the kindest reaction I've had um though you know there were some people that were just like why why are you doing this here (laughs) this is not like you sh- wouldn't you just rather go in the woods and look at birds? There's plenty of birds in the woods. <laughs> and <laughs> like, no, there's a lot of exciting things happening here too. So it was, it was a fun project. That brings up another really good point of sometimes permission is given and then regretted later. Yeah, exactly. That's, 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 yes. that's, that's, that's also, say. That's also yeah. perfectly reasonable. People I, I, don't always realize exactly what it means to say. <laughs> right. How uh, many crazy bird people can birdings. there be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then, then, you know, you're in week three and then, you know, yeah. you know, 10 to five to 10 people every single day. It's, it can be a lot. So, <laughs> yep. Um, I will say that my, I've never hosted a rare bird uh, at my house, though my, my dad did. Um, in, in Missouri, he had a, a calliope hummingbird coming to his feeder one winter. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. And he, he invited people out into the house to see it. It was at the time it was sort of a, I don't know, a mid-level rarity. Um, still plenty of people were interested in seeing it, but not like, uh, you know, inundated with hundreds of birders. But what he did was he took a little, uh, ABA sticker and stuck it on the, on the bird feeder on the, that the hummingbird was coming to the hummingbird feeder. And so that all this, <laughs> all the pictures that that were taken of this Calliope hummingbird. It's a little bit of an ABA uh, advertisement in there. So, you know, a little plug. Yeah. You know, if you're hosting a rare bird, maybe you can uh, take bids on uh, a local business to advertising out. space. <laughs> That's right. Why not? Why not? Makes me think of uh, how pale male like nested outside of. Oh, right. Yeah. Penthouse. <laughs> That's right. I think yeah. The people who lived in that penthouse just like 
became very connected to that bird and also allowed like documentary crews into their yeah. penthouse and such. Yeah, so sure. maybe there's a difference between hosting a rare bird and a celebrity bird. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> I'm very excited about this one because I love awesome. interspecies relationships, yeah, yeah. especially when they involve birds. Many of you might have heard about honey guides, um, which is a group of birds uh, out in Africa that are pretty much adapted to stealing honey from wild beehives, but not just stealing honey, but using other species, generally larger species, to raid those hives and then kind of like picking off the rewards from that. There is a longstanding relationship between uh, different species of honey guides and different communities across African countries, including in Tanzania and Mozambique. And some of these relationships have gone so far that the humans will use specific vocal signals to lure in the honey guides and then will follow the birds to the hives. And there's a whole kind of um, cottage industry around this. And, you know, it's a means of survival for both uh, the human communities and the bird communities. But there was some new research recently that kind of took this to the next level by surveying uh, different hunter-gatherer communities in Africa, a group of researchers who've been studying honey guides for a very long time, they learned that there might even be a similar relationship between honey guides and honey badgers, where the honey badgers um, somehow communicate to the birds that they're ready to go on a hunt. And um, the honey guides will lead the these mammals, which are specialized with these long claws, to kind of dig through the hives and you know get through the bees. The badgers will actually follow the honey guides to hives as well. So this has kind of been um, a rumored relationship for a long time, but there haven't been any you know documented, mm-hmm. like scientifically documented sightings. A uh, caveat here is that the study is purely based on anecdotes from uh, community members, but the researchers did talk to communities in nine different African countries. And in most of the countries, they did not really get confirmation of this relationship between the badgers and the birds. But in Tanzania, several different groups of people did say that they've seen this out in the field when they've been hunting. They've seen uh, badgers and birds working together to get to the hives. And it was a pretty overwhelming amount of sightings. I think 62% of uh, the individuals from Tanzania reported that, yes, hmm. like this, this does exist, this uh, symbiotic relationship. So, you know, the researchers could only guess why this would be. Um, and what they think is that it's the badgers and the honey guides in Tanzania have, you know, adapted to develop this understanding. Whereas, you know, in other parts of Africa, maybe this kind of uh, symbiosis hasn't come together just yet. And they're also not sure exactly how the the two communicate between each other. Um, yeah. One thing they noted is that honey badgers don't have great hearing or sight. So exactly how they see or get cued by the birds, that is a mystery. Yeah. Uh, but it's still, 
you know, it's still quite neat. I, I'm even curious what the benefit is to the honey badgers because they're already, you know, out there raiding hives. So does following a bird to the hive actually, you know, increase their chance of success by that much? We know it does for humans, which is why mm-hmm. they have developed this relationship. But I also love how this uh, study was just led by members of the community and what they've experienced, because you don't see that a ton in ornithology, although I think we'll be seeing it more and more. Also, I will just say there is this cool evolutionary question of how Mm -hmm. honey guides have kind of evolved to uh, depend on other species um, for their honey rating abilities because they're a brood parasite. So um, they do not get raised by their parents. They get raised by birds of other species, so non-honey rating species. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that the ability is probably, you know, genetically inherited and it's innate to them um, rather than taught to them. But that also is something that is a bit of a mystery and needs to be studied more. So lots of lots of cool questions. I love yeah. I love this um, the story of the honey guides in many different aspects and um yeah i wonder what other animals are are part of this honey scheme (laughs) for sure i guess i I was sort of aware of the idea of honey guides um i guess i didn't realize that it was not proven it was all entirely anecdotal and that because i remember the honey guide situation and whether it involved honey badgers or not this is still kind of murky in my memory as being like one of those things I read about in a nature or saw in a nature documentary when I was a kid. Yeah. And same um, thing here. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't remember the details. All I remember is that there were honey guides and the people followed the honey guides uh, to get the honey. And um, the fact that so much of this might've been, there might be an element of myth there. This is like the Mandela effect. I have no idea <laughs> where this is coming from, but there might be some myth going on there that I, I didn't realize. So this is neat that people are actually looking at it. <laughs> I yeah. think it's um, it's definitely established that uh, there is the relationship between humans and yeah. honey guides. Like yeah, that's yeah, yeah. been mm-hmm. observed over and over. Um, yeah, it's specifically between the badgers, the badgers, and the honey okay. guides. That's okay. still yeah, like maybe got it confused. Is it true? But that's cool. I think it, it, it's always neat too when it's like this kind of local you know, knowledge or these, these stories are then borne out by subsequent observation and investigation. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, I think there's a lot in the natural world of like, Oh, everyone says, you know, and people kind of take it for granted, yeah. but then to see follow-up investigation on that actually, you know, turn up evidence is, it's, it's really cool to see that, you know? And I think that communicating with local communities and like on the ground instead of just sitting in a lab and being like, well, I've never seen this. I think that that's an important (laughs) component of, you know, moving forward with science and, you know, kind of validating our understanding and building out this bigger picture of these complex ecological relationships. For sure. I guess it just reminded me, I think I read a book where it might've been one of Bernd Heinrich's books Mm -hmm. where do you do you all remember the story of he was like out in the woods in the winter and a raven was following him mm-hmm. and um, si- similar similar scenario of yeah. birds uh, you know finding the food and then queuing off other animals in this case um, 
he thought that, you know, the ravens were trying to cue a wolf to his presence so that they could, you know, take him out and the raven could uh, benefit. Better name for ravens is human guide, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, never really looked at ravens the same way after no, I read really. that. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah no. I remember this, there's been a lot of research on that connection with ravens and large predators in the parts of their range that they inhabit. You know, some cases maybe leading humans places, but also like, you know, I saw a couple of research going into like, as far as to call it symbiosis between ravens and wolves and just, you know, that ravens will play with wolf pups and kind of be a part of the pack in a certain sense that they're collaborating and communicating with each other on some level, which is hmm. really cool stuff. Yeah. So much of that stuff gets uh, kind of turned into stories and anecdotes that don't turn out to be true. Sometimes I am thinking when we were talking about the honey gods, I was th thinking about another sort of, interaction between African uh, animals. The the famous story of the crocodile and the Egyptian yeah. plover, um, where the, you know, the Egyptian plover famously walks into the mouths of the crocodile to clean its teeth. It turns out that's entire total BS. Like there's no, they don't actually do that. They're just like in the same places. And it became yeah. like, like almost like a, a story, Aesop's fable or something that people thought it was reality uh, over a, a long period of time. But, you know, it's nice to see that the sunny guy thing is just, there's actually some evidence to back it up because it is such a compelling story. The paper that I read for this panel was focused on two things that I think people really enjoy, hummingbirds and <laughs> alcohol. So, Everyone's favorites. That's right. So hummingbirds, obviously, large portion of their diet um, is nectar. They spend most of their time drinking nectar from flowers, and they have this complex relationship with nectar-bearing plants. And so much of hummingbirds' lives is built around obtaining and defending nectar resources uh, because they live these high-octane, super-high-energy lives where they need to constantly refuel on sugary goodness from the flowers. So this study, which was conducted by Robert Dudley out at the University of California at Berkeley, was focused on the question of, do hummingbirds consume alcohol? And if so, to what degree? So the basic premise behind this is that when nectar is kind of sitting in flowers before it gets consumed by pollinators, um, that is an ideal gathering place for fermentation to happen for yeasts and fungus to gather and sugary things tend to ferment if they're left sitting out. So this study was conducted with Anna's hummingbirds out in California. And what they basically did was they set up a couple of nectar feeders with sugar water and tested different quantities of alcohol to see if there was any impact on whether the hummingbirds were still visiting the feeders or the frequency of their visits to have a drink. And what they ended up discovering from this study was that up to about 1% alcohol by volume, the hummingbirds didn't seem to mind at all. They, they came to the feeder with the same frequency that they would for plain, non-alcoholic virgin sugar water. Um, but then when they upped it to 2%, the hummingbirds started to visit less frequently. And it wasn't that they weren't drinking, but they, they were making less frequent visits to this sugar water feeder. Um, and they kind of mathed it out. And it seemed like they're basically consuming the same amount of alcohol, but then they're they're compensating for that by visiting less. So they're not getting overloaded on it. Hmm. So very responsible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Please drink responsibly. Just get <laughs> right. a little like, you know, little hummingbird logo for that. So one point that the study emphasized was that 
hummingbirds are metabolizing their food so quickly that they're, they're probably not seeing negative effects of the alcohol that they're consuming. And in most cases where they examined the quantity of ethanol present in naturally occurring nectar, it was far less than 1%. But what this means is that um, it suggests hummingbirds have kind of a tolerance up to a certain point of how much nectar they're willing to consume. Uh, not yet clear if they have a preference for it or if they seek it out. But it was kind of an interesting result in this ongoing study of other species relationships with alcohol, because obviously humans as a species have a very complex history with <laughs> alcohol and alcohol consumption. And um Professor Dudley has been doing a lot of research into that as to like, what is, what is the deal with alcohol? Like why alcohol? Was there some benefit to humans in our evolutionary history to consuming alcohol? There's been evidence of other primates seeking out and consuming alcohol. There was a, a little note in this study about slow lorises actually like seeking out and drinking fermented, you know, alcohol and fruits like by choice. And, this study then kind of opened up the floor for other questions of what adaptations might other frugivores or nectar drinkers have for alcohol, because fermentation is a fact of life for these sugar-rich food sources. So they talked about the possibility of conducting this study with honey eaters in Australia or sunbirds, you know, across the old world tropics and seeing, do they have any similar adaptations for alcohol consumption and are they seeking it out? Or is it just that they've kind of got a tolerance for it? I, I don't mess with anything, you know, 3.2 or lower either. So, <laughs> yeah. That's right. We all, we all, they know their limit. Yeah. Know hummingbirds, are, hummingbirds are apparently very responsible drinkers, uh, <laughs> which is probably for the best because I'm not sure that the world is ready for drunk hummingbirds. They are. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're already pretty erratic in, in the way exactly. they move around. They're belligerent already. That's yeah, exactly. right. They've, they've got a lot of attitude to begin with. And I think if they were <laughs> uninhibited, if you gave them a little liquid courage, it might be, yeah, uh, might be a bit of a problematic situation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. There's a local uh, brewery uh, near where I live that has a... Um, a hummingbird on their on their logo and i don't think they quite realize how appropriate that might be that's right i mean the other thing to consider is that hummingbirds being as small as they are like one percent alcohol by volume if you're drinking almost nothing but nectar you're still consuming a substantial amount of ethanol you just that high metabolism is probably running through it at a pretty swift rate that's exactly right yeah i would say yeah the metabolism is so high do they even notice it right yeah. i love to learn more about how my own body works by right? comparing to hummingbird <laughs> physiology. I think that's really neat. Comparing. That was the most interesting part of this for me was kind of like, you know, that this study is happening within the greater context of what is going on with animals and alcohol. You know, why, why do we collectively as a species, obviously it's not for everyone, but like, why do we like alcohol and what is the relationship of other animals that kind of share our propensity for the sweet stuff with ethanol and fermented fruit or nectar. You know, obviously there's all these stories of like wax wings getting drunk on fermented mm -hmm. berries is kind of a famous mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. But I think that the idea to extend this into looking at nectar sippers and seeing, you know, to what degree is this a part of their lives and their evolutionary history, I think is a really fascinating question to explore in more depth. Yeah. It also not, pertaining to alcohol, but I think a couple years ago, there was some research um, on the hummingbird's ability to taste umami. Um, mm -hmm. Also, right. you know, helps yeah. them evolutionarily, right. or sorry, 
helps them um, kind of uh, stay on target with finding nectar. And that was kind of used as a bridge to better understand umami in, you know, human taste buds and what yeah. exactly that flavor means because it's kind of culturally foreign to the West. Um, yeah, for sure. But again, just the fact that they started with hummingbirds there because they have such a specific need to taste for something um, sweet, that, that was very neat. That's really cool to consider. <laughs> I think that someone needs to... Um come up with some sort of mixed drink that involves hummingbirds now <laughs> perhaps maybe involving that powdered hummingbird uh nectar maybe you can mix that into something and oh no combination. <laughs> no 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 good see, see, i was envisioning like a hummingbird tasting flight now like just like giving notes like <laughs> you're literally I'm getting, I'm getting floral yeah. notes exactly <laughs> <laughs> You have to drink it out of a red trumpet. Glass. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah. it's a, it's a, the glassware can be. There's a lot of options here for, for yeah. uh, elaborate glassware. Yeah. I just hope people don't get any ideas and start like purposefully trying to oh, yes. get their hummingbird <laughs> strong. P- PSA. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. This but is... <laughs> I think the study shows that it seems like they're kind of avoiding it. So yeah, they, that's right. they have this built-in mechanism. They're not really looking to get drunk. Maybe we can learn from the hummingbirds. Maybe so. <laughs> <Temperance>. <laughs> Trochility temperance. <laughs> so um, my study um, looked at human-made materials in bird nests, and it was basically a, a literature review of what is out there and what has been documented as far as um, birds using human-made uh, materials. And they found that um, there's documentation of 176 different bird species around the world that have uh, used uh, human-made materials in their nests. And that's probably not even covering everything because if it's not no. in the science scientific literature, um, they, they might have not included it. But um, it included, uh, you know, uh, quite a range of different species. I think they mentioned the European blackbird, different kinds of seabirds, ospreys, and uh, around, uh, in, as far as I'm familiar, I've seen, you know, house sparrows, American robins, cedar waxwings, goldfinches. So any, any birds that are, find themselves around human trash have found some way of using it. Um, and then, uh, the, the overall kind of theme of the study was that is in some cases, these materials can actually be beneficial for birds. And in, uh, the case that they, provided i've i remember reading about this when it came out um in the literature before was that birds were using cigarette butts to Mm. repel uh Mm -hmm. pests from their nests um and then in some cases actually plastic film used in nets could nests could uh provide insulation although those cases exist of potential benefits from human-made materials i think the overall message of the the story was you know even though they may benefit in some ways, there's the harms mostly outweigh the benefits. And that's um, everything from uh, some young birds are accidentally ingesting materials and then like plastics, which is never good. Um, an entanglement uh, issue a lot of times, you know, twine or string um, that people uh, throw away, end up in nests and then um, the young birds can get entangled in it and then they can't um, fledge out of the nest or, you know, it gets wrapped around their throat or something like that. And then also just that it may make the nest more visible because they're using Mm -hmm. kind of these artificial materials, colorful, um, things, but 
along with that, a related story came out about birds using anti-bird spikes <laughs> as nesting material. <laughs> story. Hardcore. Yeah, that was um, definitely a fun, like, nature is metal story. Um, <laughs> I think they were seeing uh, magpies constructing entire nests out of spikes in Belgium. So I, I just give a lot of props to those birds for, you know, making use of things that we're trying to use to get rid of <laughs> birds. They're like, no, sorry, we're, we're sticking around and we're using these spikes <laughs> for our own uh, benefits. Yeah. Is anyone surprised that it was crows and magpies that were <laughs> doing that? Like, Not at all. all. No. Never the and, innovators. Yeah. Super adaptable. <laughs> exactly. And then uh, the, the, the quote from uh, one of those articles, um, they, they appear to be using the pens exactly the same way that we do to keep other birds away from their nests. Like that's, yeah, it's too good. That's too yeah. good. You know, actually taking it back to what Perbita said earlier, um, you mentioned pale mail. If I remember correctly, their nest right. on Fifth Avenue apartment was constructed on pigeon spikes as well. There were anti-bird spikes <laughs> that kind of performed the foundation. Yeah. And I remember back when there was a big controversy over them, um, taking down the nest, they, they'd removed the spikes and the birds are having a hard time putting a nest back there. Um, that led to big public outcry where they restored the anti-pigeon spikes, which turned out to be pro-hawk spikes <laughs> pro that spikes. they were then able to <laughs> reconstruct their nest. My friend uh, Jose used to do some research at the Jamaica Bay National Wildlife Refuge mm -hmm. in New York City. And there are a lot of uh, osprey platforms there. And I remember one summer he and his colleagues documented <laughs> the ospreys would naturally put garbage in their, you know, very uh, helter-skelter stick nests. <laughs> and I think one year they actually found like a very creepy, like Chucky-like doll <laughs> and just tore the head off and put that in the that. nest. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, they, I saw that. Yeah, they've, I, I think that was one of the most memorable, but they've captured quite a few weird examples there yeah, i was trying to think of uh of the weirdest thing i've ever seen in a bird nest and i don't know that it's i certainly have not seen anything as as interesting as like a, a doll um you know I, I live in the suburbs so trash whenever trash day comes around some trash like falls out of the trash cans and gets gets scattered all over the place and the birds pick it up and and it's so funny to see um the funny disturbing funny in all you know definitions of the word to see like a house finch nest with like a straw wrapper <laughs> woven through the twigs and whatnot um i you know birds are super adaptable it makes sense that they'd be able to grab this stuff and and some of these some of these items are um just as useful as anything they're going to find in the natural world you know we've all heard those stories about people putting out pet hair and the birds mm -hmm. coming and mm -hmm. lining their lining yarn their with it yeah yarn and things like that i don't i don't know i've, I've seen some sort of mixed uh, reports on how whether that's good or not. Right. Um, I think if it's short, it's good because when they get long, they run into those issues. That as Stephanie was saying, they can get tangled up. Um, but if as long as it stays pretty short, it's not a huge deal. Hmm. Um, some of those birds are are super resourceful, and it's kind of funny to see funny to see them see them manage that way. That and that, that's not even getting into the birds that use human structures as sort of the basis uh, of their nests, like phoebes and robins and. Uh, swallows making nests underneath an embankment, uh, a bridge. That the whole world is full of birds using whatever things they have available to them to to carry on. On the topic of anecdotes for strange nest materials, mm -hmm. I recall last spring 
in Central Park, I was leading a bird walk and we found a northern cardinal nest that had a full receipt in it from the nearby <laughs> boathouse grill. And I remember um, one of the little girls in this in this family led walk that I was leading. She was like, I want to see what she ordered. And she was like <laughs> trying to look at the receipt with her binoculars. It was, it was very cute. I was seeing one of those super long like CVS receipts. Yeah, exactly. Perfect, like, <laughs> just wrapped, around. Thing wrapped around the nest. <laughs> I feel like there's a message in all of this that it's like, don't litter, but it's yeah. like, no matter, no matter what you do in a, a clean environment, as you think you're providing birds are out there and they're looking for <laughs> things. They, yeah, they want always. these materials. They're, yeah. they're super creative and it's just like, we can't stop them from using yeah. the things that are, whether or not they're a risk to them, but they'll, yeah. they'll find it. Yeah. An unrelated nest story, but I saw Please, a viral yeah. video. I don't even know if it was recent because um, you can <laughs> never know with algorithms now. But yep. <laughs> uh, it was a video of a bear raiding an eagle nest. Um, really? I think it was maybe taken in Canada. And the bear oh. just climbs up the nest and like grabs a, um, what's a eagle chick called? Aas? Eaglet. Uh, yeah. Eaglet, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a little traumatizing to watch, but also <laughs> it's pretty I had wild, no idea yeah. bears did that. So. That is one of the, one of the yeah, you, know, you to even go further down this this tangent, um, you know, it is funny to see there there are so many eagle nests and raptor nests that have cameras trained on them mm. now. And a lot of times people will inadvertently, you know, follow these, these eagle nests and see some of these sort of, uh, I don't know nature red and tooth and claw sort of experiences with these birds because they don't always they don't always make it and sometimes mm -hmm. it's crows that come and come after a hawk nest or or another raptor that will you know take uh take a baby hawk or a baby eagle uh owls are no great horned owls are notorious yeah. for that sort of thing they're vicious yeah that sort of stuff is happening out there all the time and birds deal with it it's you know the tendency to anthropomorphize and and think of these birds as is mourning their their loss um you know greatly is is there but um, for the most part the birds will either nest again or take another crack at it the next year and um they're they're resourceful and they're resilient doesn't change people's reaction to seeing things like that yeah i remember a few years ago the hog island audubon camp with the uh the osprey <laughs> nest right <laughs> there yeah a, a like broad daylight full view of thousands of watchers an adult bald eagle swooped in and just plucked a nearly full-grown osprey chick <laughs> off the nest Aww. it was wild to watch yeah. um and i think a lot of people were conflicted because you know big charismatic raptors both that people yep. are very fond of um but you know that's that's how the that's natural how world works yep. <laughs> yeah yeah when i used to be an editor at audubon we would I think the Osprey one was one of the first that was really popular because mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. camera had been set up for a while um, and the cup, the mated pair would come back year and year, but we would cover any development <laughs> from, <laughs> those, from those videos and, you know, people would love it and people would get so wrapped up in it. Yeah. And sometimes I was like, are we feeding the monster? <laughs> <laughs> it's tough because it's, I mean, as an educator, especially, webcams are such a fantastic way to mm -hmm. let people get this glimpse into the lives of organisms. And I think that on the one hand, it, it does sometimes lend itself to that reality TV part of the brain that people mm -hmm. get very caught up on. But 
I also think that it's it's a valuable learning experience for a lot of people to see both, you know, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of what goes on in the natural world. Um, a lot of my students this year followed along with the Kahau Cam in Bermuda on Nonsuch mm-hmm. Island and, you know, went through the heartbreak of Kahau Cam 1's egg failing to hatch, but then the triumphant success of the second chick um, in the other nest growing up and fledging successfully right around the time of the end of the school year. And honestly, one of the moments that was a highlight for me of the school year, because every school year kind of goes through ups and downs, <laughs> was when uh, one of my kids ran up to me in the hallway, excited, and showed me pictures on her cell phone if she'd been up doing homework late the previous night and had tuned into the cow cam. And she was like, look, the parent came back and was feeding the baby. And she just had photos <laughs> of this little ball of fluff. And it was, I think that it's a valuable tool that, you know, used responsibly and with the proper context explained can be a great way to get people invested. And, you know, what you know and what you care about is what you want to protect and learn more about. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps the most extreme example of that. Are you familiar with the story of the snowy owl that found its way to Bermuda? Yes, I am. (laughs) Yeah. So a snowy owl, amazing, charismatic bird, as as charismatic as they come, Mm -hmm. um, landed on Bermuda and was this huge news. And then it started eating cow chicks and they had to. Yeah, it was just hunting the colony every yeah, night. Because <laughs> it was like, oh man, it's like it's found a buffet. And um, they, had to, they had to do away with it. That's how it goes sometimes, Again, I suppose. Educational you know. moment. <laughs> educational moment. That's right. So for the July's question of the month, I'm using as a jumping off point the recent news that the entire genome of the Bachman's Warbler an extinct North American warbler species formerly breeding in the Southeast United States and wintering in the Caribbean was sequenced using museum specimens, which is cool. Uh, they found a few things out, namely that it's not a hybrid, which I was sort of surprised to hear was still an open question, but uh, <laughs> confirmed not to be. No. Uh, but with that in mind, if you had the genome of an extinct species of bird and the technology existed to Jurassic Park that bird back into existence leaving aside all the ethical concerns. Obviously not a dis- discussion for another time. This is purely hypothetical. Uh, what species would you choose to bring back? Yeah, I like this question. I could talk about it for a long time. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> we're doing, uh, for Popular Science, we're doing an upcoming feature on Colossal, the biotech company that's actually mm-hmm. trying to do this with yep. some prehistoric animals. Um, and they recently announced that they we're going to try a de-extinction project with the dodo. I remember So I told the writers, Andrew specifically, I was like, we need to get to the bottom of why the hell they picked the dodo. Um, (laughs) Very shocking choice of all the birds. Of all the birds. The one that is the, uh, one of the weirdest for starters. And one that is 400 years gone from an Island that is no, that is completely different than it was back then. But, they just picked it based on That's the name. Probably why. Yeah, I think yeah. it was brand, name brand recognition. recognition. Brand recognition is very yeah, powerful. Exactly. It's marketing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I'm a little torn. Uh, I do love the great auk. I just mm. think Classic. If you could have a bigger auk. <laughs> Big <laughs> The original penguin. The original. That's penguin. true. Yeah, That's penguins. true. There are yeah. much bigger. Um, sorry. What is the? Uh, was it? Um, Elephant birds. Elephant uh, birds. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, gets choice. a lot bigger than yeah. that. Um, but I also I love the Carolina parakeet and all yeah. that we've constructed about its history and its relationship with 
almost modern societies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Jeju Lanham has written some great stuff about because it's the extinction is still so fresh in our memory. Uh, you know, just in the yeah. past century, we have some great records about how these, um, you know, flocks of Carolina parakeets used to descend on cities and live alongside humans. And I think there's been great scientific discussion about how, okay, if we actually brought the Carolina parakeet back, it would maybe be pretty well adapted to living alongside humans today as well. So there would actually be a chance. As an aside, it drives me up the wall whenever I'm watching like a period drama uh, set back in like the mid 1800s and they're not just always talking about per- Carolina parakeets because <laughs> that's I would be talking about Carolina parakeets all the time if I lived back then. <laughs> yeah, so I think that would be that would be my choice. And I think it was the only native parrot to the continental US. I mm-hmm. might be wrong on that, but I think you're right. Well, um, it depends on how far you believe some of those got up into South Texas or right, California but for the most part. Like that, yeah. yeah. It's accurate. Yeah. I still have a little bit of a sore spot for Carolina parakeet because it was like one of the first bird April Fool's joke that oh, no. um, made its way to <laughs> oh, my yeah, email in the early, inbox. In the early days of, <laughs> yeah. of social media. Yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah, I was I was convinced. I was like, wow, this is this is, we gotta celebrate. They brought it <laughs> or they found it. It's still out there. <laughs> now now I'm prepared every April first. I'm like, no, I'm not believing anything <laughs> that I read. But I picked another um North American species. I went with the passenger oh, pigeon. Yeah. Um so of course, uh living in the Great Lakes region, that was like the core of their range. So I definitely wanted to pick a species that um, you know, I had some chance of seeing if it were brought back. And they're a specialist of the oak savanna, which, you know, we have quite a bit of in northern Illinois. And my um, background in Wisconsin, they they kind of were all over the place. Um, and, of course, it would just be cool to see uh, a bird black in the sky as it flies across um, <laughs> in its migration and see thousands and thousands of birds. Um, though the depictions that I read were mostly of horror when this would happen. But <laughs> People were a lot more I, superstitious back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had the opportunity to see like a flock of thousands of uh, purple martins at a roost mm. earlier oh, this yeah. spring and I was just like, I was just awestruck by that. I'd never seen that many Martins before. So just imagine that with um, passenger pigeons, it would be quite a spectacle. No doubt. So Nate, I got to say, when I saw this question come through the inbox with the prep materials, it spoke to young birder Tim on a very Mm -hmm. deep personal level because there are so many cool, there are recently extinct and prehistoric birds. Um, Perbita already mentioned the great auk. That was one of my thoughts, just because it's such a, there's nothing else like that today in the North Atlantic. You know, I would love to live in a world where going out on winter pelagics, you might have a great auk pop up next to the boat. (laughs) Yeah. But. That would get me out on a pelagic. Yeah, come on. (laughs) It'd be worth it. (laughs) Fight the seasickness for a great auk. You know, meter tall, flightless auk. It's just an awesome thing that used to exist. But. I think I want to spotlight for this question um, a little bit of some of the island weirdos that have existed throughout you're gonna, history. You take my bird, Tim. I, bird? I I might have to do it. Right. <laughs> I might have to do it, I right? Because the dodo is the tip of the iceberg yes, as far it, as strange things is. that have evolved yes. on islands. You know, sure, that's a gigantic. 
chubby pigeon that <laughs> grew up on Mauritius. But like, there were flightless mole ducks. There were all sorts of crazy things in Hawaii that had evolved to fill these niches. Um, and Nate, I apologize if this is the bird you're going to pick. Yeah. But my thought was Ornamegalonyx, the Cuban giant owl. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So owls are pretty. Owls are pretty good dispersers. That you know, you talked about the snowy owl reaching Bermuda. They mm-hmm. they are today probably one of the most nomadic dispersers in the owl world. But there have been many types of island owls that have unfortunately gone extinct. And the largest of them all was this owl that lived in Cuba that stood every bit of three feet tall, basically had yeah. the proportions of a giant burrowing owl, yeah. but was flightless or nearly so, and was the apex predator of Cuba, just yeah. hunting giant <laughs> rodents and, and ground slots almost the size of a black bear, just like yeah. giant terrestrial ambush predator owl, which is really cool. <laughs> I like that one. Um, yeah, there was also a, a macaw in Cuba that was there until the relatively mm, yeah. recent past that was super cool looking based on some of the illustrations. Um, like a like a scarlet macaw with a green on the... Anyway, mm-hmm. it was is really neat, really neat bird. Um, you, already, you already mentioned mine. You didn't take it. Okay. You mentioned it. I was going to go with mole duck. Yeah. Which <laughs> um, it was, uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, like a kiwi but a duck. Um, yep. So the kiwi is this weird flightless bird with like hair-like feathers that is unlike anything. Well, there was a bird like that in Hawaii that um, was a duck, um, a terrestrial duck that walked around like a big kiwi with a big flat platypus bill, like a super wide bill that it used. It would like, shuffle along and run the bill through the leaf litter like a spoon bill and pick up worms and stuff that was, that was in there. There's some illustrations of it i guess it's only found in the fossil record no one's mm-hmm. ever found any actual bird but mole duck mole duck yeah. is such so a weird they, they think it was blind or like yeah, nearly blind so or nearly just so. this tactile feeder living in burrows and like that's such really a awesome animal wild evolutionary um direction that that happened on on hawaii yeah. also uh shout out to uh host's eagle yep the, uh, the giant <laughs> eagle that ate um uh, moa on new zealand um so and, and maybe probably <laughs> they suspect that it went extinct uh, because the Maori came to New Zealand and uh, there was an eagle that lived there that was adapted to attacking and eating six foot tall things uh, that were walking around. And, <laughs> yeah, specialized you know, for eating large bipeds. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that didn't that didn't work very well. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, a lot of lot of cool stuff. I did I did consider Haas Siegel and Terror Birds, but I terror figured birds, I figured, I figured the birds, ethical considerations yeah. of bringing back something extinct were enough. It doesn't need to be something that might eat us. Exactly. <laughs> Don't go full yeah, Jurassic Park. Point. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> point. Um, a lot of really cool stuff. I mean, why stop with birds? There's all sorts of really yeah. weird critters that, are, especially in the Caribbean, um, and that uh, Jamaican petrel. Just because I'd like to see a Jamaican mm. petrel have another North Atlantic petrol would be cool. great choices everybody uh love it thank you for that and i guess uh yeah i guess we can wrap this up that are, is that all right with you yeah with everybody covered Anything wide array of topics <laughs> yeah wide array um thank you so much to all three of you uh stephanie tim and perbita you can find all their stuff in the show notes as usual please check them out thank you to the three of you for your time for your thoughts and uh, have a great rest of the summer, fall migration season. 
It's starting. It's starting. Here we Happening go. Now, July, yeah. August. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy it. And I'll see you down the road. Thanks a bunch, Nate. Always good to be here. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks all. That was fun. Thank awesome you. discussion, everybody. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So much fun. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, BDO Books, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Technical production is by John Lauer, who isn't sure whether a peach mojito is a tropical drink or a tropical hummingbird, but is pretty confident either one is pretty satisfying. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon, who put a fancy umbrella in her drink and called it a rum and spangled coquette. Additional help comes from Greg Neese, whose recipe for an emerald cocktail is Irish whiskey, orange bitters, and four to one sugar water. You can find us online at aba.org, on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. I don't have a go-to drink in the tropics, but I guarantee I'll always appreciate something with mango. Questions, comments can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week.